Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in Psalm 148. Psalm, you guys got my microphone on there? Yeah? Okay, cool. Psalm 148. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or tap your way there. We'll also have those on the screen. So if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we'd love to give you one on your way out. Make sure you have a modern English translation. We are all about Bible here at Hope Church. That's how we know God, and we want you to be reading along with us as we explore His revelation to us. Psalm 148, it starts with something that I think if you maybe tapped into the Psalms a little bit more since we've been studying them, you may have noticed this. I think uh, sometimes the hardest thing to do when you're reading something is to see something obvious, which is weird. It's sort of counterintuitive. If it's obvious, surely you should see it. But sometimes the obvious becomes difficult to notice. I think sometimes the magnitude of something sort of defeats itself in our own minds, and we don't necessarily catch what's there. But in the Psalms, one thing you should notice, one thing that's obvious, one thing that's on kind of a dominant theme on most of those Psalms is a command to praise. So a sampling in Psalm 148, this looks like a lot of the Psalms. It says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you shining stars, praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. What exactly do we need to gain from the command to praise. I'm going to ask that you think a little bit about what it's like to live in our world today because I think this is an incredibly helpful. It hits us in a sore spot for us as moderns. We live most of our lives without reference to God. Christians can live most of their lives without reference to God. The dominant cultural thought is that most things have just happened and are just happening. The Christian narrative that goes against that and says, no, 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 God created all things and they exist for His glory, is one that we have to impose. It's not our natural set of thoughts. And so, even as a Christian you can find it sort of surprising. We go to Colorado City and do this, you know, this is like mission trip week, and we're going to do all of this stuff, and it's like sun up to sundown. We're just doing things that are ministry-related, that involve a lot of prayer. And there's this part of you that kind of feels weird spending that much of your day thinking about or in reference to the Lord. And there's this kind of point at the end of it where you're like, okay, I'm glad all of the work of the trip is done. But there's maybe a little bit of you too that's almost kind of glad that the, the time with the Lord goes back to kind of normal. I, maybe that's just me. But there's this piece that's, that's almost like, okay, now I can kind of hide again. <laughs> now I don't feel the eye of God upon me. Now I don't have to like keep myself up to some sort of perfect standard that I'm going to impose on myself for what it's like to be seen by God. I, I want to invite you to take a moment and think that maybe the medievals, maybe the ancients had something on us. 
You know, if most of us think about medieval times or medieval ages, we either think about the restaurant and, you know, eating chicken with your fingers, or we think about Monty Python and the monks slapping themselves with boards and everybody standing around in mud. They just got dirt on them all the time, and that's just kind of what it was like back in those kind of crazy, kooky times. But if you actually read much of the medieval period, kind of pre-Renaissance time, you might long for their awareness of God's presence at all times. Their ability to see that the sun is not just a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace where hydrogen mixes with helium at a temperature of billions of degrees, that it's actually God's grace to us, that it's actually a candle that he lit and then spins our galaxy around, that it's actually something representative of his light and warmth, of his gravity that holds all things. You know, it seems like you would just think, no, 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 they didn't understand anything. They thought that the universe revolved around the earth. No, they didn't. Sorry, go back to like Ptolemy. Like the, the ancients knew a lot more than we give them credit for. Sometimes we just poke fun at them as kooky because they also saw the poetry of that reality. I think they would look at us and feel like we were kind of impoverished. We were people who are living in a very mechanical universe without a lot of meaning. This psalm in that way, these psalms in that way, the whole of Scripture in that way, certainly each other as Christians in that way, can prod each other to open our eyes again to the magnitude of the meaning of the world, to see the poetry in things, not just the prose, to not just see the mechanics of a thing, and not just open it up and see how it works, but to look at the fact of a thing, the fact of the dawn, the fact of a child's cry. This, this hymn, this, this psalm is giving us the grace to look around us and to see in all things the grandeur of God pressing in on us. Every blade of grass, every puff of cloud, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, like everything, friends shaking hands, to see in all of those things, not just a wonderful world, but a wonderful world because of who made it, of where it comes from, that we might be able to tap into the fact of God. And being part of this kind of redeemed community, we could even tap into the joy of God in all things. Take a step further into that. It's not just now you're going to be more obedient because you pray more and think about God more. It's actually that you're going to be a lot more happy. To live in a universe like that is to live in a universe that is filled with the joy of God. To see in all things some reflection of the praise of God. Can you imagine if you felt that everywhere you went and with every interaction that you had, the joy that you would feel, the play that you would feel, the cheerfulness that you would feel, the temptation constantly towards laughter that you would feel? C.S. Lewis. He's got this book, The Screwtape Letters, where one demon is writing to another demon. And there's a place in that where he talks about the role of laughter and even joy in the life of just a human and how a demon's going to try and use that or defend the person that they're tempting away from that. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's fun. He says, I divide the causes of human laughter into joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. So this is a demon who is studying humanity, trying to understand how to bring us down so that he can work against the glory of God. 
He's a demon. And he's teaching a younger demon, and he's saying that he devised the causes of human laughter into joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. You will see the first among friends, so joy you'll see, among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. Among adults, some pretext in the way of jokes is usually provided, but the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such times so that they're not the real cause. Now, you talk about dad jokes. When I say dad joke, are you anticipating a funny joke? Nope. You're expecting a pun. You're expecting a groan. You're expecting a hard eye roll from anybody, uh, you know, related to you. A dad joke is not supposed to be like a funny joke. Why? Because the dad is so happy to just be with his kid. The dad is in a pretty good spot. And so a joke doesn't really even have to be that good. Hey, just throw it out there. You don't like it? That makes me happy too. I don't really care. I'm having a great time. I'm your dad. There's a joy that's there. You have the same thing happen. If you're somebody who thinks about funny things and tries to actually be like really funny and you watch other people get together and say like just the dumbest, most inane stuff and get like peals of laughter from people that love them, it can be frustrating. You're like, that worked? That? That was good enough? There's so many things that you could have said. There's so much wit that could have gone. There's so many things that you could have like called back there or tried to be a little silly there or whatever. And you just said the dumbest thing and everybody loved it. Why? That's what he's saying right there. Why? Well, because they love you. There's this internal well of joy that's bubbling up and it needs just the weakest, the most silly, the most pathetic attempt to get it to just pour out into laughter and joy. That's what he's saying there. What the real cause is, and the demon is saying, what the real cause of this laughter, this joy is, we don't know. The joke's not funny. Why are they laughing? We don't know. Something like it is expressed in much of that detestable art, which the humans call music. And something like it occurs in heaven, a meaningless acceleration of the rhythm of celestial experience, quite opaque to us. Laughter of this kind does us no good and should always be discouraged. Now, if the demon says it should always be discouraged, then the Christian should always be attempting to encourage this, this kind of joy. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from this praise. So let's read the psalm again. I'm going to read a bigger chunk right now because I want you to see the way that this psalm fits together. I want you to see what the author of this psalm is doing. Again, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. He's talking about the heaven of heavens, the high, high, the highest possible. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Anytime you see hosts in scripture, I want you to also think armies. Sometimes we think hosts and we think the lady that sends you to your seat at a restaurant. Or we think hosts and we think a group of people. Okay, biblically, that word should mean armies. It should have a martial flair. It should have an edge of danger. It should have a glory, but it should also have a power to it, okay? He's talking about the angels in heaven. He's saying, praise him, sun and moon. So now we've kind of zoomed into the physical universe. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. He's talking about clouds and all kinds of different stuff there. Praise, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. We'll come back to it, but notice there that he goes from the command to a reason for the command. Praise for, we'll come back to why. Verse 6, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. 
He created the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind filling this world. He's talking about everything here. He's talking about the deepest depths within the earth. So not just the universe or the things beyond, but he's talking about now on this earth, all the weather, but also all the things in the deep, deep. So the wild things at the edges of our world. Talks about the mountains and all hills, the fruit trees and all cedars. So not just the waters of the weather, but he's talking about now the land and the plants that grow on the land, the features of the land and the produce of the land. He's getting more articulate. He's saying in verse 10, the beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. He's now talking about life. He's talking about animated things. And then he starts talking about intelligent animated things, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Now he's talking to the crown of creation. He's talking about the image bearers. Do you see what he's doing? He's commanding this praise, but he's commanding it from everywhere. It's inescapable. We don't have the means to think of, to conceive of a place that's beyond the things described in this psalm. This praise is going to infiltrate. It's going to glow in. It's going to be literally everywhere. How do we tap into it? I, I, I think, again, we're, we're kind of tourists in this sort of a worldview. I think the ancient could have stepped into it and understood a universe that is filled with meaning, even if they had a pagan description of that meaning. And they've got to convert from a pagan description of that meaning to a Christian or a godly description of that meaning. But we have to go even a step further because we go from a dead mechanical universe into a universe of meaning that we then understand as meaning based on this sovereign Yahweh, this God that's revealed himself, this covenant Lord. So what, what is the, the for? What is the way in which you access that command to praise? Well, he says in verse 5, he commanded and they were created. That means that, and again, this is, I think, kind of the, the piece that connects all of this. That means that everything you see is intentional. It's on purpose. What's the difference between walking through a field and walking through Disneyland? From just a human perspective, nobody cares about the field. The field's just whatever's in there. Goat heads and dead possums and whatever's there. You go to Disneyland and everything there is on purpose. There are going to be places that are dirty because there's so many humans kind of walking through it and we're just, you know, disgusting. But the, the like kind of left to its own devices or even once they get the cleaning crews going, everything you see at Disneyland is intentional. And you can even tell when you walk from kingdom to kingdom because you're walking from where everything is intended to display this theme to a new place where everything is intended to display this theme. Everything is on purpose. The trash cans are decorated on purpose to show you that you're in space land or you're in under the world sea land. I don't remember the names of the places. We've only been once. It was very stressful. But when you go from kingdom to kingdom, everything there displays it. The kid that's selling you hot dogs is selling you under the sea hot dogs with a costume that's under the sea. Everything is showing you where you're at. Everything has meaning. Everything was intentional. And the people that are like adults that geek out about Disney, you know, I don't get that from the outside, except for they're impressed by the system. 
They're impressed by the level of detail. They're impressed by a place where things just really do finally kind of work. Okay, take that into the universe. Take that beyond. Take it back to the field. When you walk through and you say, okay, this isn't intentional. This has kind of been left wild. Is it? God has still designed the gravity. God has still designed the dirt. God has still designed the sky. God has still designed the life that springs up out of it, even if we have not cultivated it as we were supposed to do. There's another element that's winding through all of the rest of creation, which is the fallenness, the brokenness of that creation. But if you weave those two things together, then you can see both the comedy and the tragedy that's built into the universe that we walk around in. If you just go to see a movie because you want to laugh, you can do that. You can pick only movies that make you laugh, but most of us don't. Most of us are drawn to something that displays something more of the human experience. Sometimes you go to a movie to laugh, but sometimes you go to cry, to feel fear, to be inspired, to feel challenged. Why? Because the universe is holding all of those different things in it. The Bible doesn't describe a perfect world. The, describe, the world. the Bible describes a world that was perfect and has fallen. The Bible describes a walled garden where everything was beautiful and intentional, and yet the walls have broken down. Something critical inside that garden snapped, and when that took place, the corruption, the breaking, spun out from that point and infected everything everywhere. So we do see a magnificent, soul-wilting beauty in the world, but we also see a shadow. We also see something less than. And when I tell you that the world is enshrining God's meaning, you're going to be able to tap into that through Scripture. You're going to be able to tap into that through the way that God describes these things. That shadow, that break, is seen most clearly in your ability to connect with Him. When I describe a little bit of relief in stepping back into a dead mechanical universe, part of the relief is that I don't have God watching me all the time. Part of that relief is a little bit of that guilt and shame that just is so hard to scrub off. Part of that relief is is stopping for a moment from feeling the tragedy of that disconnect between me and God. But there is a reconnection that God's always doing. We'll continue to talk about that. But, but in Scripture, God, He plainly reveals the meaning of some of the relationships that we see in the world. The, that God has chosen the symbol of a man and his wife to embody the relationship of Christ with the church. That God has chosen to embody the relationship of God the sovereign with His covenant people by the relationship of a father to his child. He has chosen to imbue those relationships, not on the back end as an analogy, but on the front end as a poetry. So so much so that you can look around at those relationships and see those meanings bubbling out, even through the broken ones, maybe even especially through the broken ones. I'm inviting you to take steps further. I think the psalm is inviting you to take steps further, not just meditating on the covenant, but meditating on the whole of the physical universe to show you that all of these things are speaking praise to God. So that it's possible to look out at everything and feel your soul get hot again, full again, with joy. I've been traveling a little bit. Jack and Katie made it. They've been doing that cross-country trip recently. And every time you go through the cross-country trip from somewhere back east to here, you always have that experience of, 
where we were, things were pretty ish, you know, good enough. There were at least people there, you know, whatever. I have some connection there. You get out here, everything's absolutely gorgeous. You can't go anywhere without having these moments of seeing the mountains and being kind of knocked over by them. And then there's everything in between, right? Kansas, Nebraska, you know, some of these places where people are there. They can't be that bad. But there's not really a compelling moment when you're going 85 on the interstate through those places. There's just a lot of corn. It's just a lot of flat, right? Okay. That's bad on us. Not bad on Iowa. Not bad on Kansas. The people who live there do get to experience something of the fullness of creation. The people that live there do walk around under the blue sky. They do walk around at night under the limitless heavens. They do stand on that dark soil. They do look at that life-giving corn. They do see in the joke or the hmm, bitterness of a human eye something of the fullness of the image or the broken image of God himself. If you could tap into the meaning that this psalm is telling you about, you would go to Kansas because how could you possibly live in a place like Salt Lake where all those things are true and you have the mountains? How could your soul stand that level of beauty? The sensitivity that you would be developing all the time would be in some way just overwhelmed constantly by the beauty that God's put in this world. You would go from the one, I think, to the other. There's a poetry there. It's an overflowing that's there, and I want you to see that. It goes on in verse 13 to talk more about it, to get more specific. Let them praise the name of the Lord for... This is where, again, English helps, you know, maybe have a little bit of understanding of how language works. He's telling you praise because... Here's how I'm going to motivate myself to praise. Because His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. All of these things are not just saying pretty... All of these things are not just saying big. They're pointing to a specific person, a specific God. And you are to see in that specific person, in that specific God, throughout all his invisible attributes, all over this creation, something that is to overwhelm you. So we went to Colorado City. You saw the video. We set up a big party. And we just gave away a bunch of free things. My job was cotton candy. I was tapping in with a couple of people on the cotton candy side. If you've ever done the cotton candy, several of you have. We've done this event and this event trailer a lot of times. You understand the, you know, I don't know, health hazard that is the cotton candy machine. Because you're trying to do it, it's spinning really fast and it's hot. And there's all these little wisps of sugar going up your nose and in your well, beard or, you know, whatever you got for a face. Just constantly sugary kind of encasing this chrysalis that's forming over your head and body of sugar. As you're just giving out, one after another, cotton candy to a never-ending, faceless horde of people that are there for free cotton candy. How long have we done it? Doesn't matter. The line has not gotten any shorter. We just got to keep going for hour after hour after hour. Now, if you're the guy at the cotton candy machine, it's a soul-deadening thing. But if you're the person <laughs> handing out the cotton candy over the counter, it's, it's heavenly. It's, it's, a, it's an embodiment of God's grace. Why? Gift, 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 gift. How much is it? Free. 
Why? Because we love you. Or Brody does. We're connected with him. You know, love. Just gift, gift, grace, 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 grace. Why? We're embodying something there. We, we enter into that poem in that way. We enter into the dance in that moment of displaying something of a gracious God. I love being part of a religion that funds, sees as essential event trailers that are just filled with popcorn makers. There's not even gospel tracks on the event trailers. There's just sugar. But why? Because that preaches the gospel. It's this this grace that overflows and overwhelms. When we step into that character of who he is, that we understand, not just by creation, but by revelation that then helps us to understand creation, we step into a God who is holy and merciful, righteous and gracious. We get to display in something that we're doing a little bit more of who God is as his image bears. He didn't have to create us, but he chose to. Everything that you're seeing around you is grace. It is a gift. Your house becomes so much more loving and full when the things that are there aren't just things you bought in the cheapest possible way. They're things that were made for you and given to you. That's possible over time. Instead of just having the the just plainest Ikea whatever, to have a friend build you a something. Then there's function, but that function also has meaning. That table is also given by a person, and it's enriched by not just the function, but the love. Tap that, zoom that out to the whole of the universe, every breath that you're breathing, every next step that gravity enables gift, grace. He didn't have to, but he created. And part of his covenant people, we can go further and see that he didn't have to, but he did. And he didn't have to create, and he didn't have to recreate. We describe that shadow that's on all things, that brokenness, that crack that runs through all the foundations of this world. We also get to see how he is undoing that break. It says in verse 14, again, teaching us why we praise, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. He's not just talking about people anymore. He's talking about a specific people. He's talking about his people. He's talking about his saints. He's talking about Israel who are near to him. He's talking about a recreation. He's talking about a sewing back together of that break that took place. And he's talking about it by raising up a horn for his people. Now, this is where the poetry gets real poetry-y. You know why people don't love poetry? Because it's work. It doesn't just shout out all the time. Sometimes it does, and it just overwhelms you. But most of the time, you've got to do a little bit of research. You've got to do a little bit of work to understand what these illusions are, what these analogies are. What is this horn word, and why is he talking about it? Well, if you just really pound Scripture into your brain over the course of a lifetime, you're going to start to see certain things that come up again and again, and you're going to use context clues in one place to understand meaning in another place. That's the best way to do it. Realistically, though, we live in a place where most of us are native English speakers. And if you are a native English speaker in 2022, you have an embarrassment of wealth for anything you might try to understand about the Bible. 
I do. I have my little ESV study Bible app. I'm a preacher. You think, oh, he reads the Greek. Nope. ESV study Bible app. You go to the ESV study Bible app, and it tells you, here's where to look for this thing. It'll often give you footnotes that connect you to other parts of Scripture to help you understand what you're reading. You just have to have the gumption to ask the question, what does it mean, and how do I access that meaning? When he talks about this horn, though, he's describing on an animal this display of its strength. And so to talk about this horn of his people, he's talking about strength that God has given to his people, that he's lifted, he's raised up strength for his people. He has made a way of saving and sustaining his people. He's talking about a new creation for his people. And whenever you're reading in the Old Testament or the New, you're trying to find the places where they connect with each other. In this spot, where he's talking about a horn of salvation, raising up a horn for his people, if, again, you just read the Bible a lot, you're going to connect these things. If you're just the rest of us and you have a study Bible app, it'll just tell you these connections. But in, Zechari- uh, in Luke chapter 1, this guy Zechariah, who's the dad of John the Baptist, who is the one who goes before Jesus and is preacher about Jesus, the Zechariah guy prophesies about Jesus in, in Luke chapter 1. And he talks about how God has visited and redeemed his people, how he has raised a horn of salvation for us that will save us from our enemies, that will show us the mercy promised to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Who? How? Jesus. What is this horn of strength? What is this this raising up that makes us raised up with it? Jesus, fallen, spoiled, desecrated us. Jesus comes to be with us. He descends to be with us. He then takes all of that filth upon himself, receives God's wrath for that dirt, God's wrath for that rebellion, dies our death, and then is raised to new life, bringing us with him. The core of our praise, which is why it's the core of our teaching, is that redemption. So do you want to have this kind of praise, this kind of joy that's constant? It's not just about trying to become medieval in your thinking. It's about meeting the Lord who has made a way of salvation for you, accepting that salvation, and then living the whole of your life in an overflow of praise towards him. So that's the question this morning. How are you going to respond to the command of not just Psalm 148, but of Scripture to praise? You got options. You can reject it. That's what Screwtape Letter was talking about. He was talking about the demons who have totally rejected it to the point that joy itself has no meaning. That's possible. Don't do that. But you could. That's what sin is. You can just keep rejecting. Or you can recognize you can recognize the hand of God that's all around you all the time. I've been in and out of airports a lot recently, and I've seen a lot of women pushing kids in strollers. And the kids in those strollers display all kinds of different sort of experiences. And, you know, I'm just seeing them one at a time, so they probably go through all the range of those experiences while they're in the stroller. But there are some kids, I saw this (laughs) uh, on a connection, so I think it was in Atlanta. I saw one kid who sat in his stroller like it was a throne. And you could see in, the, in his face as he was kind of looking around. He was looking at his subjects as he was cast around through the terminal, like his, his majesty and glory going before him and behind. And he was just in total proud control of all things. 
Now, we know that that's silly and funny because he's a pudgy little kid that's buckled into a stroller being pushed by a person who actually is in total control of every aspect of this existence, right? But that's how he chose to be. Now, I'm writing into it a couple of meetings. I didn't interview the child, but that, that, that's kind of the way he was acting. And then, of course, there are kids who are freaking out. They're crying and throwing a fit as hard as they possibly can. They're pushing. If they could figure out how to undo that buckle, they would be running for it. There's as hard as they can. They're trying to get out of the care and support and security of the stroller. You can be those ways. You can be proud and ignore the fact that you're totally dependent. (laughs) You can be crazy and just freak out in anger at the one who you're dependent upon. But the best way to be is to just be a thankful little baby, happy for the love, the provision, the protection of the mother. Recognize, see his fingers in all this creation and all that sustains you, and praise him. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us a cheerful people, a people who have the aptitude um, to be like the, the servants of Solomon, Father. When the Queen of Sheba came and saw the King Solomon and saw his wisdom and saw his wealth, she had heard the legend, but the reality was greater. And she declares, happy are your servants to sit under a just king, to sit under a wise king, and so wise and so just that the world is just turning into gold all around them. I pray that these things would happen to us, Lord, because we do have a wise king. We do have a great king. We have not only one who has made us, but one who has remade us through Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who enjoy, show you praise. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.